Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We have several interesting cases to discuss on the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast this month. They represent a wide array of legal issues. First, we're going to discuss a federal appellate ruling in the case of a gay man fleeing violence and persecution in Ghana by seeking asylum in the U.S. Next, we'll chat about a case that the LGBT Bar of New York is litigating on behalf of our client, Tamika. Tamika is seeking a tri-custodial agreement in a case that would extend additional protections to non-biological, non-adoptive parents. Finally, we will talk about a case from Alaska dealing with the issue of access to gender confirmation surgery under a public employer's health benefit plan, and another case from North Carolina involving the categorical exclusion of coverage for gender transition in a state medical plan. With us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. Art, how are you? Okay, okay, you know, uh, hanging out in my apartment. I was enthusiastic. I know, you're hanging out in your house, I'm hanging out in my apartment. Uh, not, not a lot of uh, human contact besides our husbands. <laughs> Thank God for our husbands. We have human contact, which I think some of my single friends who are living, you know, alone or in little studio apartments, I, I can't imagine being cooped up like that. But there it is. We got to do it. What are you guys doing for quality time together? Quality time together. He sleeps while I'm up, and I sleep while he's <laughs> well, <laughs> not totally. But he's he's a night person. He likes to stay up really late watching television. And I go to sleep reasonably early because I'm a morning person. I like to be out taking my walk in Riverside Park at 5.30 in the morning. Oh, wow. So uh, we, we overlap midday when he's up and I'm up. Right. But uh, apart from that, uh, uh, you know, uh, one, one way to not get in each other's hair all the time is to have totally discordant hours. <laughs> it's true. My husband's still asleep while we're chatting right now. So he'll sleep till noon. <laughs> so will mine. <laughs> Ah, well, we've got this strategy down. I mean, you have to carve out little pieces for yourself when you're, you know, I'm in my cabin in the woods, but you're in a, you know, New York City sized apartment. And, you know, you're just not used to not having that much space for yourself. Well, mine is rather large. Uh, oh, okay, we, Art. Go ahead, four, and rub it in. We've got 1400 square feet here. So, you know, oh, that's uh, nice. so we have some room to maneuver. And when he's watching TV, I can close certain doors and not hear him in the living room while he's in the study. So that works out. That's nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and, and uh, dig into our very first case. Uh, we're going to talk about Adamu Sumala. Did I say that right, Art? I've, I've been saying Sumala. It's oh, S-U-M-A-I-L-A. All right. Well, let's be on the same page. So Adamu Sumela fled his home country of Ghana and entered the United States without authorization after his father and neighbors assaulted him and threatened his life when they discovered that he was in a same-sex relationship. A crowd gathered at Sumela's house, forming a violent mob. Together with his father, the mob began to beat the two young men with stones, wooden sticks, iron rods, and drag them into a courtyard. Sumela sought asylum and withholding of removal under the Immigration and Nationality Act, the INA, and protection from removal under the Convention Against Torture. 
He fears being persecuted or tortured on account of his sexual orientation and identity as a gay man if returned to Ghana. We have a Third Circuit ruling to discuss in this high stakes case. Art, this was a big um, decision and uh, you were out right away with a write-up for your blog. Talk to us about this Third Circuit case. Okay, well this, this is important and unusual because uh, most of the time uh, when denials of asylum are, are upheld by the Board of Immigration Appeals and uh, the individual appeals it up to uh, the Federal Court of Appeals, they don't even get, they don't get a hearing normally. Uh, but this case was actually put down for argument. Uh, evidently, the petition for review was persuasive enough that the court decided they needed to hear argument. And the interesting thing is that the argument was done by two law students from West Virginia University College of Law, which wow. is an immigration law clinic. Uh, why West Virginia? I'm not sure. We're not told why Sumela is in the Third Circuit. Uh, when he, he fled uh, from uh, Ghana with the assistance of some friends, he went to Togo, then he flew to South America, then somehow he got into the United States and applied for asylum. Uh, I think it's possible that because he was put into detention, which is the usual thing these days, uh, that he was detained uh, somewhere in a federal facility or a state facility in West Virginia. Uh, either that or the immigration clinic is handling cases from out of state. But luckily he ended up in the Third Circuit and he ended up before a judge uh, who really expressed outrage at the way uh, his case was handled. The judge is Luis Felipe Restrepo, mm. who is a native of Colombia, became a U.S. citizen in 1993. Uh, he was appointed by uh, Barack Obama to the Federal District Court and then to the Third Circuit. Uh, and uh, one thing that's, that's really interesting, in a footnote toward the end of his opinion, he chastises the immigration judge for the way he questioned Mr. Sumela about his sexual orientation. He said he asked about specific sex acts and what positions people took. And, and the judge said, that's just inappropriate. Oh my that's, God. that's, uh, there's in, inadequate respect for the dignity of the individual and the way the IJ did this case. And, and so, uh, judge Restrepo says, if the BIA feels that they have to remand this to the IJ, uh, tell him about how he's supposed to question applicants and in particular members of the LGBTI community. I mean, this is a judge who's very sensitive. So, uh, I mean, you told the story, but you left out a lot of, a lot of the detail. Uh, this, this was a, a young man in Ghana who uh, met this other boy at school in Accra, which is the capital of Ghana where he lived. Uh, they discovered each other. They began an intimate relationship, which went on without being discovered by anybody else for 12 years. Yeah. And then in January 2016, Sumela and his, uh, his partner were 26 years old, and his father unexpectedly entered Sumela's bedroom at the break of dawn and discovered Sumela having sex with his boyfriend, Inusa. And his father flies into a rage. He began shouting, his son was having sex with another man. He called on others to come, come and witness what my son is up to. Oh and the judge really does a great job of summarizing the testimony here. He demanded answers from Sumela. He condemned his actions. He said, why do you engage in homosexuality? You've brought shame to this family. I will make sure you face the wrath of this evil deed. 
and uh, he was shouting and neighbors gathered outside the house the, the, the young men were dragged outside oh my god uh, the mob was screaming you know they wanted to put them to death they were debating whether to burn them or behead them one guy was waving a cutlass and uh Sumela remembers being doused with kerosene he was in fear of his life somehow he managed to run away uh, to a friend's house where he was briefly sheltered. His uh, friend said, well, you can't stay here. It's too dangerous and, and help find, find someone to smuggle him across the border into Togo. But he didn't feel safe there either. Uh, so he was able to get his friend to sneak into his house in, in Accra and find his passport and get it to him. And uh, he was able to fly to Ecuador we're not told how he ended up in the U.S. Uh, I'm assuming that he joined one of these carib so-called caravans heading northwards. But he uh, came into the U.S. and he applied for asylum. And of course, applying for asylum in the age of Trump is not a done deal, no matter how bad your story is. And the problem here, partly, was that both the immigration judge and the BIA mischaracterized the facts in important ways. Uh, and uh, the court just felt that the record did not support the factual findings. And this is very unusual. Normally, the courts defer pretty heavily to the fact finding of the immigration judge and the BIA's application of the law. But they said, in this case, uh, and this is a unanimous decision by the three-judge panel, that the record just did not support their conclusions. Like the, the uh, immigration judge minimized what happened. He said, it's an isolated incident. Just a minute, an isolated incident? When Sumela testified and the judge found he was credible that uh, friends in Ghana had told him that his father has vowed to find him, to track him down and kill him. And the judge says, oh, he can go back to Ghana safely. We don't think he was subjected to persecution. And besides, it has to be persecution by the government or by forces that the government is unwilling or unable to control. Well, Ghana sends you to prison if they discovered that you're gay. And uh, various international organizations, as well as the State Department, report that violence against gays in Ghana is a very significant problem, especially in prison. Uh, so to say that he is, has neither been subjected to persecution or is likely to encounter persecution if he's returned to Ghana, now that he's been outed by his father and by a mob, uh, it just beggars credulity. It's, it's bizarre. And uh, the, uh, the courts said here there could be no serious dispute that the attack and threats Sumela suffered were motivated by his sexual orientation. He uh, testified credibly uh, as to whether he uh, suffered persecution. Uh, the immigration judge characterized as fatal to his claim the fact that he didn't go to a hospital or to a doctor that must mean that his injuries weren't serious. Oh my God. Sumela testified he was afraid to go for, to any place for, for health care. He was afraid to do anything but try to escape uh, because he had been threatened with death. And I mean, we have a court here that's being very realistic about the problems that are faced by gay people in countries like Ghana these days. Uh, and uh, you know, the idea that uh, he could contact the police well, if he contacted the police in Ghana and told them what happened, he'd be thrown into jail and he'd be sent away for several years and he would probably be assaulted, and maybe even killed in jail. So uh, the court said uh, there is no way 
that you can say that he could have gone to the government. And right. there's no way that you can say that the government would have protected him in any significant way. Uh, the immigration judge pointed to, there was a press report that the uh, law enforcement was prosecuting someone for anti-gay violence in Ghana. And they seized on that and said, see, well, we're not told how that turned out. We're not told <clears throat> whether the person accused of anti-gay violence was acquitted. Uh, and uh, the court says they're, you know, they're, they're seizing on stuff in the record. Also, it's lucky that the State Department, during the years when Hillary Clinton and John Kerry were secretary, when they were putting out their country reports, they put out country reports on Ghana that communicated very strongly and very specifically the dangers that anyone who was out gay would suffer in Ghana, the, the threats to their life. Uh, we're told that the most recent country report issued uh, by the Trump administration has been sharply criticized by human rights groups for omitting the kind of detail, especially with respect to LGBT people, that you find in the country reports from the State Department during the prior administration. So uh, they also uh, cite Amnesty International reports. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the conclusion is that you don't send openly gay people back to Ghana. Uh, the immigration judge said, oh, he could just relocate to a different part of the country and hide the fact that he's gay and then he can live a full life. And the courts basically said, ha, a full life when you have to hide who you are. Uh, I mean, this is, this, is, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. The court says uh, relocation is not reasonable if it requires a person to live in hiding. To avoid persecution now that he's been outed, Sumela would have to return to hiding and suppressing his identity and sexuality as a gay man. Tellingly, said the judge, the IJ's observation, no matter how ill-advised, that Sumela could avoid persecution and live a, quote, full life if he kept, quote, his homosexuality a secret, was a tacit admission that suppressing his identity and sexuality as a gay man is the only option Sumela has to stay safe in Ghana. The notion that one can live a full life while being forced to hide or suppress a core component of one's identity is an oxymoron. So uh, the court vacated the Board of Immigration Appeals decision and remanded the case for uh, appropriate follow-up consistent with this opinion, which means I think Sumela should be granted asylum by the Board of Immigration Appeals. They shouldn't even have to send it back to the immigration judge, one hopes. Uh, but, you know, it's unusual to find a federal circuit court opinion this lengthy, this detailed, and this empathetic in understanding of the situation. And I just say thank God for the judges appointed by Barack Obama because Judge Restrepo did a magnificent job. I assume his clerks had a role in his opinion. It's extraordinary opinion. It's worth reading. Uh, for those who don't have access to Westlaw or Lexis, it's certainly available on the website of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. You can download it there, Sumela versus Attorney General of the United States, March 31st, 2020. Well, thank you for doing such a good job of highlighting <clears throat> the facts of this case and some of the uh, language from, from the decision. I remember when Judge Restrepo was, um, you know, pending, uh, his nomination to the Third Circuit, and he was being held up by the Republicans. Uh, it was a big fight to try to get him confirmed, even though 
the home state senator there who was a Republican also supported his uh, appointment to the Third Circuit. Um, it's these federal courts are changing quickly, Art, and, um, uh, you know, we're lucky to have some some fairness at the moment, but who knows how bad it, 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 it will continue to get. Well, a lot of hangs on November. It sure does. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a case out of New York. All right, we are back. We are disappointed and heartbroken for our client, Tamika, and for the many LGBT families across New York State whose recognition and right to parental security have been denied by a recent decision by the Appellate Division for the Fourth Department. Uh, Though Tamika did not give birth to her child, Tamika has been and remains the child's parent in every way, though the birth mother and the attorney for the child have also affirmed Tamika's role as a parent, the appellate division fourth department has abandoned principles of justice and equity in favor of the biological father's narrow and formalistic interpretation of the statute to only two parents. The LGBT Bar Association of New York has been committed to advocating for the principles set forth in the Court of Appeals seminal 2016 case of Brooke B. That case recognizes that families come in a myriad of forms and the rights of non-biological, non-adoptive parents must be recognized and protected. Today, Art is going to talk to us a little bit about the decision and the facts, and we look forward at Legal to appealing this decision to the Court of Appeals. Art, what what can you tell us about this case? Well, uh, this was actually one of two cases, uh, both issued uh, on the same day, March 20th. Uh, Tamika was the lead case, and then a second case, uh, Wallach versus King. Uh, was decided by reference to Tamika, really, although the facts were slightly different, but in crucial respects, they were the same. And the problem is uh, the Brooke SB decision was in some sense a revolutionary decision because it overturned a longstanding precedent in, uh, in New York, the Allison D case, which said that if you have a same-sex couple that is not married to each other, and Allison D is from 1991, so they couldn't have been married to each other, and they have a child together. They plan to have the child together. The insemination is undertaken by uh, the couple together. That is, uh, one is present, the, they have an agreement, the uh, sperm donor uh, may be an anonymous donor if they get sperm from a sperm bank, or maybe someone who they know who has agreed to waive in writing all parental rights. Uh, they raise the child together and then in the Alice and D case, the women broke up and there was a dispute about whether the non-biological mother would continue to have access to the child. And the Court of Appeals said that the non-biological mother was a, quote, legal stranger and thus had no standing to seek custody or visitation. And that decision stood for over 15 years. Uh, and uh, then we get actually over... 25 years. And then we get uh, in 2016 uh, a partial reversal of that in the Brooke SB case. And the problem with Brooke SB as precedent is that the court said we're, we're deciding the case before us on the facts before us and we're not going any further than that in this opinion. So in Brooke SB, 
once again, we had two women who made an agreement and the child was born as a result of their agreement. And they were raising the child together until they split up. And then the non-biological mother sought uh, to continue to have a relationship with the child and the birth mother refused. Uh, and the Court of Appeals said, we have reconsidered Allison D. And we now accept that if there is this kind of strong, clear evidence that the child was born, was conceived and born as a result of the relationship with these women, and they were raising the child together by agreement, uh, we will enforce that agreement. We will take that agreement into account and uh, we will look to the reality of the situation. And if it is shown, and it had to be shown on remand in that case, if it is shown that in fact, the non-biological mother is really a mother, has been performing in a mother's role, has bonded with the child, et cetera, then they might be entitled to have custody and visitation if it's in the best interest of the child. Now, the domestic relations law of New York says in all of these disputed cases, the primary factor is the best interest of the child. But the problem from a formalistic legal point of view is you don't get to that until you decide that the party seeking custody or visitation has standing to do so. And the statute says in order to have standing to do so, you're supposed to be a parent. And a parent is traditionally defined as a biological or adoptive parent. Now, Brooke SB extended that to a uh, non-biological parent by agreement of a specific kind, an agreement jointly to have and raise a child. Tamika takes us the next step because at the time that her partner became pregnant, they were not together. They had been together. They broke up. And after they broke up, Tamika, uh, Tamika's uh, partner, former partner, got together again with an old boyfriend named Jesus, and he got her pregnant. But they weren't really a couple, and Jesus was not interested in raising a child. And after uh, she broke up with Jesus, she and Tamika got together again, the birth mother, and they agreed, Tamika and she, that the child would be Tamika's child as well. They'd raise the child together. So in some ways, this tracked Brooke SB, but in uh, some important particulars in the eyes of this court, it didn't. Uh, and so in addition, one way that it's, it's different is it isn't a dispute in this case between Tamika and the birth mother. It's that Jesus, who was in prison for a while, has decided after the child is three years old already, Jesus has decided he's not gonna give permission for this child to be adopted or to have, uh, or for Tamika to have parental, legal parental rights to this child. He, he wants to assert his rights as a biological father. He's changed his mind. And the court says in this case, under the domestic relations law, there can be two parents. There cannot be more than two legal parents at the same time. In order for Tamika to be a legal parent, Jesus may not be a legal parent. And Jesus as a biological parent takes priority over Tamika, and therefore, sorry, we can't help you, says the fourth department. And the argument that uh, Legal is making on behalf of Tamika is, well, just a minute, under the domestic relations law, we're supposed to be looking out for the best interest of the child. We have an intact family here of these two women with this child, and isn't it in the best interest for Tamika to be a legal parent as well 
there are really some uh, disabilities to not being a legal parent in terms of being able to give consent for uh, medical treatment in emergencies in order to be sure to have access to the child if something happens to the birth mother in the future. It's really important to protect that relationship uh, to have it recognized in the law. So Legal is petitioning the Court of Appeals uh, for permission to appeal this case up to the state's highest court. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure uh, about the Wallach case uh, in terms of whether they're also seeking review, uh, but the court basically just referred to its Tamika ruling and showed how the facts in the Wallach case, although slightly different, uh, were still tracking the key facts in the Tamika decision. And so they decided both of them the same way. Uh, so this is, this is a case where you could say legal formalism is getting in the way of sound policy because it's clear from the facts of this case that it makes no sense to deny Tamika legal standing as a parent. And of course, granting her legal standing as a parent isn't the end of the case because she still has to prove it's in the child's best interest, but she never got to that point because the court wasn't willing to recognize her as a parent in the first place. Right. This is simply to get the foot in the door to be able, as you mentioned, to have standing so that she can prove uh, that she should have uh, access to the child and custody visitation. Um, we should mention that we're litigating this case with our partner law firm, Nixon Peabody. Um, they've been a, doing a wonderful job uh, with us together on this case um, out of their Rochester office. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting. It, it's, a, it's a split now that we have um, in New York. And so it seems like uh, this would be a good case for the um, Court of Appeals to take. Any other thoughts on this case, Art? Uh, only that we're, we're watching it closely. We're hoping for the best. Uh, I think Tamika was featured in a, a video presented at the Legal Annual Dinner. Uh, she's obviously a very concerned and caring mother, and uh, we hope that we're going to be able to vindicate her rights. That's right, and I'll put that video up on the link to this page so that folks can take a take a look. It's a beautifully shot video featuring Tamika, featuring um, you know our litigation team and and the folks at Nixon Peabody. Just a beautiful family. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about transition-related care in public health care plans. All right, we're back. All mainstream medical associations, including the AMA and the APA, recognize that transition-related care can be medically necessary and life-saving. The AMA and other medical organizations have called for an end to discriminatory exclusions of transition-related medical care from public and private health insurance policies. We have two important cases that we're going to talk about that focus on access to health care for transgender state employees. The first is a case brought by Lambda Legal arguing that a blanket exclusion of transition-related surgical treatment for an Alaska state employee violates the sex discrimination prohibition of Title VII. And the second case is a case, again, brought by Lambda Legal and TILDEF, arguing that by excluding transition-related care, North Carolina officials are violating the Equal Protection Clause, Title IX, and non-discrimination provision of the Affordable Care Act by unlawfully discriminating based on sex and transgender status. Art, these are two uh, wins, actually. Can you talk about these two cases? 
Well, one is a further along win. The, the Alaska case uh, was uh, a ruling on the merits. Uh, and uh, on March 6th, senior U.S. District Judge uh, Russell Holland uh, said that the exclusion of any coverage, coverage for gender transition under the State Employees Benefit Plan in Alaska is discriminatory on its face and is direct evidence of sex discrimination. Uh, the ruling doesn't require all employers uh, in the public sector to provide coverage for gender reassignment surgery, but it requires that they not discriminate because of an employee's sex in deciding which procedures are covered. Uh, the decision has potentially very wide application uh, because this is premised on Title VII. And uh, it's important that this does not necessarily hinge on what the Supreme Court decides in a pending Title VII case on whether discrimination because of gender identity is sex discrimination as such in an employment context. This case is about whether people who are identified at birth as men and people who identified at birth as women uh, are entitled to the same procedures, but for different purposes. That is, if a procedure could be, would be performed, and all the procedures involved with gender transition could also be performed for other medical conditions, for other reasons. Uh, so if you say that a transgender person who's trying to transition can't get this procedure, but a cisgender person could, uh, or, or a, a person of the different sex uh, as identified at birth could get that, then it's sex discrimination, not to revise the procedure. And the issue is whether it's medically necessary. That involves, of course, the court agreeing with the uh, health associations, the professional associations like the AMA, like the APA, uh, that in fact, for people with severe gender dysphoria, uh, the various uh, transition procedures uh, may be medically necessary uh, on an individual case basis. Uh, so this is a very important ruling on the merits. Uh, the question is at this point whether the state of Alaska is going to try to appeal this district court ruling. They're in the Ninth Circuit, and in the Ninth Circuit, they would be subject to circuit precedent, the Edmo case, uh, which, as we reported last month in, in Law Notes, was denied on bank review. Uh, that's from Idaho, and that's on the question of whether a prison has to uh, provide uh, gender transition for a transgender inmate. And in the course of that decision, uh, the Ninth Circuit majority and on the uh, denial of on bank, the majority of the judges of the circuit have endorsed the idea that the World Professional Association Transgender Healthcare, uh, WPATH, their standards are the gold standard for the professional judgment as to what is medically necessary treatment. And they set out the factors and the circumstances under which it is medically necessary for a particular transgender individual to get gender transition. Uh, so if this case were to be appealed to the Ninth Circuit, I don't think uh, they're going to get very far. The state is going to get very far in appealing it. Uh, there was a dissenting opinion from the denial of on bank uh, in which uh, the dissenting judges, uh, including a fair number of recent Trump appointees, disparaged the WPATH standards and said it's not appropriate for the court to embrace the standards by an organization that they characterized as an advocacy organization, not so much a professional organization. 
organization, but it's a professional organization of people who treat transgender people who provide therapy. So naturally, they're going to take a particular point of view, say, say the dissenters. Uh, but the point is that courts all around the country have accepted the WPATH standards, mainly at the district court level. Uh, so the Ninth Circuit's acceptance of them has been an important breakthrough there. So this is uh, important for transgender state employees in Alaska. The, the North Carolina uh, decision is at an earlier stage. This was on a motion to dismiss by the state. And the employers in this case are two of the state university colleges in North Carolina. So the case is brought under Title IX, which involves uh, sex discrimination by a, an educational institution that gets federal money, which is just about all public educational institutions. Uh, there's also an equal protection claim, and there's a Section 1557 claim under the Affordable Care Act, which prohibits sex discrimination in plans that are qualified uh, to meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so this brings in not Title VII, but three other legal theories, two of which could be affected by the Supreme Court's decision, uh, theoretically, uh, depending how one analyzed the sex discrimination issue. Uh, this is uh, District Judge Loretta Biggs in uh, the Middle District of North Carolina. She refused to dismiss the case. Uh, she said that the fact that the Supreme Court decision is pending doesn't mean that I should hold my decision in abeyance. I can decide now not to dismiss. They can always come back if necessary to seek a dismissal if the Supreme Court decision comes out in a way that helps the state. But whether it does or not, there's an equal protection claim in there as well, and the Supreme Court's decision will not be affected by that. The, the issue under the equal protection clause is whether gender identity discrimination, if that's how you're gonna characterize the omission of treatment coverage here, uh, gender identity discrimination, does it get heightened scrutiny? And if it does, does the state have an important interest that is substantially advanced by this exclusion? Uh, especially when the estimates on how much money this would add to their budget for employee health care for the year, it, it barely moves the needle. And you're talking about these uh, state colleges with hundreds of employees and they're spending millions of dollars a year on health insurance coverage. And maybe it'll be fifty or sixty thousand dollars to do a sex change operation, you know. So uh, they can't really make an expense uh, argument. Uh, and under the Affordable Care Act, of course, the problem there is that we have litigation pending in federal court by several states to declare the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. Again, uh, and uh, the Fifth Circuit uh, actually remanded a case on that to the district court for further consideration, but it didn't reverse the district court's decision that the whole act was unconstitutional. Uh, so that's pending at the Supreme Court, and they're gonna hear arguments on that next uh, next term. Uh, the Title IX issue, we have a lot of uh, Court of Appeals precedent around the country uh, holding that uh, Title IX applies to gender identity discrimination. That could be affected by what happens at the Supreme Court, but not directly since Title IX and Title VII have their own separate legislative histories and, and litigation, although courts in Title IX cases have looked to Title VII precedents in trying to flesh out the meaning of sex discrimination. So we have all these different theories floating around. The court refused to dismiss as to any of them, uh, which means they're all in play in the Middle District of North Carolina before Judge Biggs. And uh, the next step will be discovery now that uh, 
we've gotten past the motion to dismiss. Uh, so that's another important one. Uh, these have to be litigated state by state because each state, of course, has its own employee benefits plan. And one helpful step uh, in terms of this quest for coverage is that uh, the states usually contract with uh, insurance companies to administer their plans, to uh, get the claims, to evaluate the claims, and to authorize the payments, and then the state puts the bill. And most of these insurance companies now, because because major employers that buy group insurance have been covering these things in recent years. The, uh, the spread of coverage for uh, gender transition in the private sector has been extraordinary, which means all the insurance companies provide it, which means the coverage is available if the state's willing to pay for it. They just have to buy a rider on their existing policy. So it's no big deal in terms of administratively complying if the court ultimately rules against the state on this. Uh, so that's the state of play. We've got these two cases, uh, one in Alaska, which may be going to the Ninth Circuit, one in North Carolina, which survived a motion to dismiss, and we'll be getting into discovery now. Fascinating. And I, you know, we have an of note, and I don't know where you're going to go with this, Art, but I do want you to at least give us a little bit of an update on the Supreme Court case in the Title VII. You referenced the, the uh, Harris Funeral Homes litigation, but what about you know the, the three cases together? When can we expect that? We're watching Twitter, expecting it to come down. What right. Okay, uh, well, just to, to address that briefly, the Supreme Court canceled all its oral arguments during March and April. Uh, and they just announced uh, yesterday uh, which would be the 13th, they issued an announcement that they're going to hold oral arguments in certain pending cases, not all the pending cases, by telephone during May. This is a first in the history of the Supreme Court to hold oral arguments uh, without the parties all being in the room with the judges. And they're going to broadcast the telephone thing to the news media live, uh, which is also unusual. Usually they make a recording and they release it later in the day uh, but they, they're going to release it live. They see no reason for delaying uh, to release the arguments. And some of those are very significant arguments, like uh, whether we're finally going to see Donald Trump's tax returns, for example. <laughs> but, uh, but the Title VII cases were argued back in October. Uh, so the issue is, when are they going to be issued? Uh, they have started, they, they, they issued almost nothing in the way of opinions before the end of 2019 from the cases that were argued early in the term, like a handful of cases. Uh, and then they were very slow out of the gate in January as well. Uh, they have a big backlog of cases to, uh, to release. But since they didn't have oral arguments during March and April, they had plenty of time to work on these opinions, which they normally wouldn't have because they, they spend lots of time in preparation for the oral arguments and they have the oral arguments. Uh, so they had all these days when they weren't doing uh, preparing for arguments and holding arguments when they could have been writing opinions. Uh, so although many people had speculated earlier that we wouldn't get these opinions until the end of the term in, in June, they may come out sooner. Uh, yeah. And on every opinion day, I'm at my computer. Uh, you know, I've got the court's uh, website up. I've got the new opinions thing up. I'm refreshing, you know, constantly until the uh, cases start popping up starting at 10 a.m. I was expecting that there might be opinions uh, yesterday, but they didn't release anything yesterday, even though they had a conference on Friday. So they must have a lot of certain decisions to announce. 
uh, but they're holding them till next Monday, I guess. I, I looked at the court's calendar and the date was blank. It didn't indicate that there would be any session. Uh, so, but they could, they could issue opinions at any time. Uh, they're not required to wait until a Monday or a particular day of the week. Uh, so we're all watching and waiting. Uh, those opinions, uh, everyone expected to take a long time because we expect the court to be divided no matter how it comes out. And so if there's, they're drafting concurring opinions and dissenting opinions uh, and drafts going back and forth and people modifying and altering their drafts to address the arguments in the opposing drafts, uh, those opinions tend to take a long time and tend to come out late in the term. So we'll see. We can't tell what's going to happen on that. All uh, right. In terms, in terms of the of note, I, I did want to, to just note this, uh, that uh, for the past several months in the law notes, we've been tracking and reporting on some litigation in the Southern District of Illinois on behalf of transgender prisoners who are uh, laboring under the disadvantage that the Illinois Department of Corrections has a transgender committee that decides who gets what treatment, et cetera, and no one on that committee is qualified to make those decisions from the point of view of uh, being uh, knowledgeable about medicine and transgender uh, issues. And the U.S. District Judge, Nancy Rosenstengel, who's been providing, presiding, there have been a stream of pretrial, you know, denying motions to dismiss, denying motions for summary judgment, uh, preliminarily enjoining what's going on. Uh, at this point, Judge Rosenstengel has said, look, this transgender committee is not qualified to make these decisions. You've got to get someone who's qualified to make these decisions. And most recently, uh, in this issue of Law Notes, we report uh, some decisions issued on March 4th. One, which is very important, is she certified a class action, which means whatever relief the court gives will not be limited to the handful of, of plaintiffs in the case, but will apply to all transgender prisoners in Illinois. And in the second opinion, uh, she vacated a part of her preliminary injunction, which ordered hormones to be provided for the named plaintiffs because it seems they're being provided. So that doesn't have to be there. But she reissued the preliminary injunction to ensure continued access to hormones for the rest of the class, which extends to, uh, you know, several hundred people potentially, and that there be monitoring of all the prescribed hormones by doctors who are qualified in this area and that the transgender committee not make these decisions. Uh, so I mean, this case is proceeding. This is going to end up at some point with an ultimate decision on the merits, which could really revolutionize the situation for transgender uh, inmates in Illinois. And Judge Rosenstengel relied uh, heavily on the Edmo decision by the Ninth Circuit, although Illinois is in the Seventh Circuit, not the Ninth Circuit, but she found lots of evidence uh, in the Edmo case about how one should analyze these cases. So that Court of Appeals decision in Edmo is proving to be very significant. That's, that's fascinating. I'm wondering if they have a Democratic governor in Illinois, does he have jurisdiction over, you know, the, the power to, uh, to make some kind of difference here? Well, I don't think governors get involved in micromanaging what their Department of Corrections does. You appoint a commissioner and the commissioner runs the department. Uh, I would think that uh, the governor could put in a word, <laughs> might be useful if the commissioner is an appointee of the governor. Uh, but 
you know, correction departments around around the country have really fought against uh, the claims of transgender prisoners. And readers of Law Notes know that every month we have a prisoner litigation notes section, which is just packed with cases. And the overwhelming majority of the cases we're reporting on these days are not gay prisoners. They're transgender prisoners desperately struggling for appropriate health care and appropriate protection from other inmates. Uh, so the issue of transgender people in prison is a big issue, and it would be great if Democratic governors would get involved. Thank you, Art. And did you have a law note or an of note, or was that your of note? That, that was my of note. <laughs> the, the, the Rosenstengel uh, situation. I thought Thanks you were going to sneak in an extra of note for me. Well, you know, there was lots of stuff in this issue, but I think we've been going on for quite a long time. Yeah, this is going to be a very long <laughs> podcast. Well, people have plenty of time to give us a listen. It's not like there are too many uh, other activities they could be doing. So, but, but I have one because I'm teaching a class this afternoon, so I got to get back to work on class. <laughs> All right, get, you're trying to get rid of me. I see what's going on here. All right, Art. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. And thank you, uh, everybody who's listening, for listening. Join us again next month when Art will give us uh, a new update of amazing cases from the latest edition of LGBT Law Notes. Thanks so much, Art. You take care, okay? You too. Okay. Bye-bye.